So once upon a time, there was a family of mice that lived inside of a piano. And they enjoyed the sound that they heard, kind of filling up all the dark spaces inside where they lived. And even though they couldn't see it, they always believed that there was someone playing the piano, someone making the music that they were always enjoying and listening to, the harmonies. Someone that came to be known as the great player whom they could not see. And then one day, a daring mouse decided to venture out of the little space they'd been living in. So the little mouse crawled out of the space and found that there were a whole bunch of wires inside of that piano. And they were varying lengths and varying thicknesses. And the mouse came back and reported, oh, I figured out where the music came from. All these wires that we found inside the piano. And then they started thinking less about the player and more about the wires. And then another mouse ventured out a little bit further. And that mouse found a whole series of hammers and said, oh, wait, I, it's not the wires that are making the music. It's these hammers that are hitting those wires all the time. And then they came to think, well, it's the hammers that make the music. And every time those little mice ventured out more and more, they began to formulate these complicated theories that hammers were the secret and the numbers of hammers, and they danced and they leaped. And the complicated theories became less and less about the unseen player and more and more about a mechanical and mathematical world that they were living in. And then the unseen player came to be thought of nothing more than a myth. You know, it's been a long path that you and I have been on through history, getting to the point where we are now, where modern belief is almost gone. A few centuries ago, a man was, man was gaining more and more knowledge in science. He began to look the Bible differently through a different set of lenses as he was becoming more and more scientific. And he began to think, you know what? There's no way there could be talking snakes. There's no way there could be talking donkeys. And the truth of the scriptures became more and more like a myth. The pursuit of God became less and less a priority so that it wasn't faith in God that was governing the actions of man, but a desire for self-pleasure and preservation. So more and more we became like that little family of mice that was living inside the piano, getting smarter and smarter, and having less and less to do with that unseen player of the music. The trap is when Christians fall into the same pattern with an increasing unwillingness to exercise faith, but instead seeking oftentimes that same pleasure and preservation as everyone around us. And in the same way, a lack of physical activity can make us flabby and less energetic. As we cease to exercise our faith, we can become faithfully unfit. And what I want to talk about this morning is how can I become faithfully fit? How can I become faithfully fit? 
The passage I want to look at this morning comes from 1 Samuel 26, and we're continuing to see David grow in wonderful ways. Again, Saul is seeking to find him, even though he repented in chapter 24 and said, David, I'm so sorry. I was wrong to be hunting you down. The lesson was short-lived, and he's hunting David again. He's received word of where David is, and David has decided he's going to sneak into this enemy camp. We're going to pick up in verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 26, and we'll read verses 6 through 12. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 6 through 12. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one Stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. You may be seated. This morning we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. It's about trusting in times of transition. The Israelites are going through a great deal of transition at this time. They'd gone through a time of judges, these warrior-like leaders that led them into battle. And now they, they're at a point where they desperately wanted a king. They got their king. And they're about to lose that first king and gain a second king, David. He was a shepherd boy, but he was anointed to become king. And all through this book, we see the need to trust in times of transition. In our own lives, we need to be trusting God when we go through times of transition. It seems like the older I get, the more frequent these, tra <coughs> excuse me, these transitions continue to come. So this morning, I want to talk about becoming faithfully fit. We see it in the life of David. He's confidently putting his faith into action. You see it there, he walks into an enemy camp. And I like to go through the text this way. We'll do a then, always, now kind of setup. We'll get into the shoes of the original audience, and we'll look at the text through their eyes. And we see that David acts on his faith. And then we'll see that throughout time, the timeless truth is that God is growing us. <clears throat> Often through uncomfortable means, he's growing us, growing our faith. And then finally, we'll talk about how do we exercise our faith. Almost like a muscle, our faith has to be physically exercised. So let's start with David. Let's start with his own actions in this passage. Now remember, he's already faced Saul once. Think about it back in the cave. He was hiding in the cave and Saul came in. And he, thought, and he thought about killing him. His men were egging him on, but instead he just 
cut off a corner of the, the man's robe, and he felt this deep remorse after he'd done that. And he regretted even cutting off that corner of the robe. Then in the next chapter, chapter 25, when he had to face this guy Nabal, and, and Nabal had offended and, and neglected these men who saved his shepherds, he decided he would not take up his hand against Nabal. His wife Abigail, in essence, said, this isn't your battle to fight. Let God fight this battle, or else the guilt's going to be on your head. And now we see this new opportunity where the scene was set. Saul was informed of David's whereabouts. Again, he was hunting him. So he and his men went, and they camped out in this area they thought that David was going to be in. And David's spies learned of their location. So he asks for a single volunteer to go into the camp with him. Now, can you imagine that? You know, it's like you're going to be tiptoeing through this camp full of men that are happy to kill you if they would see you. And, and the, the would-be king comes to you and said, Hey, why don't you come with me, sneak into this camp? Well, this guy, Abishai, he did it. So these two guys, they go sneaking into this camp full of men. And then this guy, Abishai, speaks up. And he says, oh, here's Saul. He says, let me just, let me pin him to the ground with my spear. And then look at David's response in verse 10, starting in verse 10. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, just by entering into this camp, can you see the tremendous amount of faith that David is exhibiting? He didn't know what would happen, but you know, David knew that there was a promise made to him that he was going to be the king. And he was emboldened by that promise. So he would go and do this, this kind of thing. I was reading through this passage. And before you get to that part uh, in verse 12, you're thinking, well, how in the world are these people just like, how are they just like walking around? I mean, was every single, like, did these men all have sleep apnea or something? I mean, can they not hear these dudes tiptoeing around? How do they keep from waking anybody up? And then you see it there in verse 12. David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head. And they went away, and no man saw it or nor, knew it, nor did they, any awake. They were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So God is active and involved. And this deep sleep, it happens several times in the Old Testament. It's when God is at work. It's the same uh, Hebrew word that was used to describe the sleep that came on Adam when God took a rib from his side and different places when God was working and speaking. And the point here is that God is acting on behalf of David. This is also why David said what he said to Abishai. Don't kill him. Only God has the right to do this. To take the life of an anointed leader. And, and David, he learned from chapter 25, he saw what happened to Nabal. He said Nabal was was subject to the vengeance of God. David said, I didn't have to do anything. God took care of it. God knows what he's doing. And David is seeing that patience and restraint 
It's what he's being called upon as God is working out his plan. Violence is only going to give way to more violence. So you see David acting on deeply held faith in truth. And it's amazing what the faith of one single man or woman can accomplish as other people see it. And other people see their courage to act on it and they witness it. And the effect of the Christian life lived out in these difficult situations, it could be extremely dramatic and powerful and forceful on the impact it can have on those who don't believe what we believe. There was an, an article that appeared in Christianity Today. It was back in 1974. It was about Christians in the Soviet Union. And there was a former criminal named Kozlov who became a church leader. And he talked about what he saw among these Christians that were in the Soviet prison. He said, among the general despair while prisoners like myself were cursing ourselves, the camp, the authorities, he said that many of them would open up their veins or even open up their stomachs or hang themselves. But he said the Christians, who were oftentimes facing sentences of 20 to 25 years, did not despair. And he made this really powerful statement. He said one could see Christ reflected in their faces, their pure, upright life, deep faith, and devotion to God. Their gentleness and their wonderful manliness came, became a shining example of real life for thousands. Did you hear that? Real life. Do you want real life? Would you ever think of real life as that which is being lived out in a, in a prison in the Soviet Union? Wouldn't you consider that to be, no, this is the, the halting of real life. Real life is, no, no, not necessarily. Real life is being lived out right here in Sheridan as you and I live out a life of faith. That's real life. One of the deepest joys we can have in life is seeing our faith growing and acting on it. So David acted on faith, and I want to see the timeless truth now of this passage, that you see that God actually grows our faith. He grows it, and he's putting David in all these circumstances. And, and in this text, David was convinced of God's guidance and what was going on. And, and we see it through the Bible. As, as men and women gain understanding to God's ways, they act in ways that otherwise they would not have acted. And all through, if you go through the book of Hebrews, there's this one chapter in Hebrews. It's called the, it's like the Hall of Fame of the Faithful, Hebrews chapter 11. And you go through that chapter and it talks about what people have done as a result of the faith they have. Noah built an ark having never seen a flood. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho fell down. You see, the faith in God is powerful. It was powerful then, it's powerful now. And, and the scriptures tell us first that faith comes from hearing. This is from Romans 10, 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, what does that mean? See, in the Old Testament, they heard through the words of the prophet. In the book of Samuel, you, you see Samuel himself, the prophet, speaking to the people, spoke directly to David, told him what was going to happen. This is how they were 
hearing and learning about God himself and his plans. And they would believe what the prophets said by faith. They had reason to believe what the prophets said because what the prophets said came true. Historically, that's what happened. And here we have the words of Christ himself. And because of the testimony of Christ is true, because he died, and because his body is no longer anywhere in the world today, although he once lived here, because that testimony is true, we hear and we believe. And then our faith grows as we continue to learn more about God. In other words, the more we know about Christ, about the character of God, the more we're able to put our trust in Him. As we understand all that He's done for us. You can think of it in terms of human relationships, if you like. If you, if you know someone, you, if they're a trustworthy, reliable person, the more you get to know them, the more you trust that person. It's similar with God. The more you get to know Him, the more you understand Him, the more you add understanding to your faith, the more your faith should be growing. We shouldn't just be learning for the sake of learning. We're learning to continue to grow in our faith. That we believe more. That we understand it to be true. And then God doesn't just leave our faith alone. It's going to undergo testing. It talks about this in James chapter 1. If you look at verses 2 and 3, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is one thing I love about in the Old Testament narratives, we see this playing out in narrative form. When we get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers are giving it to us, telling us flat out what we're gleaning from these lives lived in the Old Testament. And the book of James was written to persecuted Jewish believers. And it was necessary for their faith to be tried and tested to see if it was the real thing. To find out what was true. If it was worth the metal. If it had staying power. If they were going to persevere in the face of difficulty or if they were going to run. There was an article written by, this was written by Philip Yancey. He talks about the modern tests of faith that we go through. And he said that faith gets tested when a sense of God's presence fades. Think about that song we sang this morning. Even when I don't see it, you're what? You're working. Even when I don't feel it, what? You're working. And we may wonder, well, what person, what could one person do? What difference will that small effort make? Then Yancey talks about a situation where some men felt exactly that way. It was about a, a time in World War II where soldiers, they were talking about how they spent a particular day. And one guy said, well, I just sat in a foxhole all day. Once or twice, he said a German tank would drive by. He'd shoot at it. There were some guys playing some cards, frittering away the time. He said a few of them got in some really furious firefights. But most of the day passed like any other day for an infantryman on the front. And then when that day was uh, over, they learned that they had just participated in one of the biggest and most decisive engagements in the entire war. That was the Battle of the Bulge. But it didn't in that moment feel decisive to any of them. They were just doing the stuff they knew they were supposed to be doing. 
But see, because none of them had the big picture of what was going on elsewhere, they thought it was rather inconsequential what it was they were doing. And the same can happen in our own lives. See, we're playing a part of, a, of an enormous battle. It's a spiritual battle. And it's happening all the time in our world. See, it's not just the missionaries. And I love our missionaries. Abraham and Laura, my wife and I have known since uh, 2004, missionary in the Philippines right now. But don't ever get stuck in the, the idea that it's just like the pastors and the missionaries that are once fighting the battle. It does not work that way. Each and every one of you living out your life here in Sheridan are part of the battle. And if we forget the big picture and, and, and see faith tests help us to remember the big picture. Because even when it just seems like God is gone, and he's not doing anything anywhere. Yes. Yes, he is. Tested faith will also bring about works of faith. If we go on the book of James, James 2.14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, this has been a troubling verse for a lot of people for a long time. Because it sounds like you have to uh, work for your salvation. That is not at all what the passage is saying. It's, they say, well, it's, a, con it's a, a contradiction of this passage, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But James is making the point that true faith will be evidenced by works. That we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Because if you go on and read Ephesians 2.10, what does it say? If we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works will come after we are saved. We are saved to do them. And this is about putting our faith into action. God's workmanship results in good works, so faith should always bring works. People should be evidencing what they believe by how they choose to live. Those things go hand in hand. And then, so what do we do? What do we do right now, you and I? Well, we need to exercise this faith. We need to exercise our faith. And that's what David was doing. When he was restraining himself from killing Saul and restraining himself from killing Nabal, when he did that, what happened? He saw that God took care of it. It was his job to be obedient and faithful, and it was God's job to take care of the rest. And he walked into that enemy camp, and what happened? God kept them asleep. See, God took care of it. David had to start with the words. He started with, with hearing. He heard the truth about God, then he believed the truth about God, and then he acted on what he believed to be true, believing what the prophet Samuel had said, and so it is with us. And there are parts of our walk that we have to maneuver, walking by faith and not by sight, and that's when we exercise our faith. So let's talk about that three ways. Um, first of all, exercise your faith by praying. Exercise your faith by praying. You see, it's not easy to speak to God. We can't see Him when we're talking to Him. 
Normatively, we don't hear anything back. I'm not going to say that never, ever happens, but rarely he speaks, to his, he speaks to us primarily through his word. And God commands us to pray. And this should be our primary go-to discipline when things are at their absolute worst. And um, even as I was praying, uh, preparing this, I thought, you know, it seems like it seems like I'm always standing up here, and maybe even too frequently, I'm telling y'all to pray. Just, just pray. But then I thought, no. No, I don't think I can tell you this too frequently because it is absolutely essential to the life of the Christian. This is primarily how you demonstrate the faith that you have, that God is in fact there and that you are going to pause and you are going to speak to him like he commands us to do. And our Christian lives are going to be incomplete without prayer. As a matter of fact, I want to, I want to invite you to a, an opportunity to pray um, every third Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Our next one's going to be at June 15th. We gather a group of us to pray. I'd love for more people to come out and be part of that. Because, see, if we are a praying church, if... We will be alive, and we will be thriving, and we can trust as we seek hard after God that he's going to bless us. If we are a praying church, if we are not, we will be a dying church. It's a powerful tool. We, we rarely utilize prayer to its full potential. Instead, we often choose to worry. I said we, because that's... That's me too. There's an article that was written by a guy named John Guest. <clears throat> it was called Why Worry? Because when Scripture, when scripture encourages us to pray without ceasing and, and cast all our care upon him, it's literally saying to redirect. Listen to this carefully. This is so powerful. It's, it's saying redirect those restless, energetic minds into a positive stream of communication with God and turn it all into prayer. That instead of nursing wounds of self-pity, pray for the grace to forgive. And instead of worrying about those for whom we're responsible, ask God to intervene and lift that burden from us. In other words, when you feel anxious, instead of expending that energy, as Satan would have you to, on anxiety, turn it into prayer to God. That's what he's telling us to do. That's the right thing to do with it. This art, this author of this article goes on to say that when he lived in England, he said his landlady had a little plaque on her wall that read this, why pray when you can worry? <laughs> and he saw it, he saw the humor of it, he said he always would try to turn it around. Why worry when you can pray? Why worry when you can pray? Exercise faith through prayer. And then secondly, seek knowledge. Seek knowledge. Now, you may say, well, what does that have to do with growing a deeper faith? Because we want a faith that is seeking understanding. We need to know this God that we profess to believe in. And we see that in the life of David. We see as he learned more about God through the prophets, he trusted God more. He saw God's presence in his life more often. And such is the way with faith and knowledge. And by the way, I love studying the Bible. I love studying theology. Listen, I've got the greatest job in the world, 
okay? And I get to work with the finest group of folks here at First Baptist Church. I love this church. I love the people here. Seeking the Bible and seeking to learn more about the Bible and about God, though, is not an end in itself. It should be growing us. And somewhere along the way, we've gotten this mixed-up idea about faith and truth. It's gotten kind of mixed up along the way. And uh, there was a, an Indian, it was actually a Christian scholar from India named Vishal Mangalawadi. I'm probably messing up his last name. But he shared a story after he visited America. He said in November of 2011, he said he visited two classes at a Christian university in North America. And he asked both of them, this was an interesting question. He said, how many of you would still believe Christianity if you found out tomorrow that Christianity was not true? That is, that God never became a man, that Jesus did not die for our sin, or that he did not rise from the dead. He said that 12 hands went up in the air. It was about 25 students. And he said that these sincere students, they came from devout Christian homes, from Christian universities. They'd gone to church all their lives. They'd already been at a Christian university for three years. They respected their elders that taught them Christianity. It was all about faith. However, they never included the word truth. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because... And he espoused that Christianity lost to Mary because he, he asserts that 20th century evangelicalism branded itself as the party of faith while science, the university, and the media branded themselves as the party of truth. This is one of the reasons 70% of the Christian youth leave the church because there's something that they're not getting. Because if they think that secularism and the world and science and the university, if they are the purveyors and conveyors of truth, but then over here you've got the church, well, this is about faith. This is a false dichotomy, okay? This is wrong thinking. It isn't truth over here and faith over here. It doesn't work that way. And if you are not seeking God, I promise you, you are not seeking truth. Is it any wonder that we've gotten so mixed up about calling men she and women he? Because when you lose the truth, or you think you're, that the truth has nothing to do with God, this is the, these are the kinds of mistakes that are going to happen. You can count on it happening. Because as our knowledge of God increases and you better understand him, belief and faith and trust go right along with truth. And if you think that Christianity is primarily just here to make you feel better and that I stand up here on Sundays just to make you feel better, you got it wrong. I'm not telling you this stuff to make you feel better. I'm telling you this because I believe it's true. Be a learner. Be a student of God and the Scripture. By the way, this fall, we're going to have more opportunities to go deeper. On Thursday nights, we're going to bring back the Theology Thursdays. We're going to be talking about the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, how to study the Bible. And we're doing a bit of a men's ministry reboot. We're going to have some more opportunities for men's ministries. 
Study the Word of God. Go deeper. And then finally, take a risk. Take a risk. David stepped into that enemy camp only knowing later that God had kept those men asleep. He had no guarantees of that going into it. Is it? Does it particularly appeal to man's sensibilities to do what he did? I would argue perhaps no. But when you have a faith like David did, when you've seen what he's seen, it did. But he took a risk. He didn't let fear stop him. You know, what is it that you really want to do and the only thing stopping you is fear? Because fear is never a reason not to do something. Faith needs to be working. And, and, and you as a Christian may be asking yourself, well, how is it what I believe is informing me as to what I do? Am I, am I living differently than the unbelievers around me? And I would ask you, are you willing to take a risk? And oftentimes that means the risk of failure. Are you willing to risk failure? You know, if you go and look at some of these New Testament, these heroes that we have, like, like Peter, what was it that separated Peter? What was the risk that he took that the other disciples didn't? Well, they were all in a boat. They were in a storm. They were in a lake. It was nighttime. And when Peter saw Jesus, he was willing to do something the others were not. He was willing to step out of a boat and he did something that no one else did. He walked on water. Now, did he do that well? Well, he screwed up. He took his eyes off Christ. He began to sank, sink. Jesus lifted him up out of it. You see, taking a risk of faith like this, this is where life is really lived. This is the joy of being a Christian. What little step are you willing to take? Maybe it's to be a teacher. Maybe it's just to be a greeter. Maybe it's to, to volunteer. And, and maybe it's about sharing Christ with somebody. If you take a risk and you fail, so what? What have you really lost compared to what you can gain by experiencing the hand of God working in your life in a way you've never seen it before? There was a... I understand from one survey that about 70% of our area is, is unchurched. And I think it's safe to say that greater than half of Sheridan is, is lost, is unsaved. Well, as a church, are we not commissioned to go out and to seek that which is lost? Are we just sit here to live comfortably in a nice building that we've got all paid off? How are we going to do that if we don't take some risks? There's a guy named Zig Ziglar. Um, he lived down in Dallas. He's a, he's a great speaker, if you've ever heard of him. And he said, you know, it's risky when a plane leaves the runway, but that's what planes are for. It's more risky for the plane to just sit there and accumulate rust. He says it's risky when a ship leaves the harbor, but that's what a ship's for. It's riskier when the ship just sits in the harbor and collects barnacles. It's risky when a church launches out to seek to expand, but that's what the church is for. It's riskier to sit on our laurels and imagine that things will always be the same. You know, when the Declaration of Independence was written, it was 56 men that knew they were taking an awesome risk. They knew if the revolutionary forces didn't win, that everything they owned was at stake. 
they pledge their lives, their fortunes, their honor. And let me ask you, is there anything that you love enough that you're willing to risk your life for? Anything important enough to risk your fortune or your sacred honor? Is the cause of Christ enough that you'd be willing to do that? See, that's how our faith is exercised. When we put it in motion, when we add feet to it, so putting this all together and closing down, um, become faithfully fit through prayer, learning, and risk-taking. Don't forget to pray. Keep learning and take some risks. Pray for those opportunities. That story I shared with you earlier about the mice that lived in the piano, I love the very last line of that story. It's said, and just in one sentence, but the pianist continued to play the piano. God continues to be part of our universe. He upholds it, regardless of what those around us may think or believe. God is still playing his music. He's still a presence. And regardless of the advances in, in science that improve our understanding of the universe, God is still the ultimate cause of everything. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for being faithful to us, even though oftentimes we are not faithful. Lord, give us the courage to take some risks that we would not be afraid to make you known. God, that we would seek you out in prayer and not get lazy in that discipline. And God, that we would exercise the faith that you may grow it. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your, your ultimate act of dying on the cross to save us from our sins, but which is why we're sitting here now. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord Jesus. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.